This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of October 25th, 2021. We have Jonathan Fisher returning after winning 10 games coming in. And uh, so on Monday, we have the contestants, Hillary Buxane, a visiting assistant professor from Northfield, Minnesota. Stephen Sohn, a business operations professional from Los Angeles, California, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose 10-day cash winnings total $230,100. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the landlocked nation, having a ball, double initial guys, carnival talk, D-nature of things, with D in quotation marks, and famous last words. I felt like we were a little triple stumper heavy, maybe, for a, for a Jeopardy round. I thought these, these questions ran a little hard. I, I agreed. For, for a Jeopardy round, they did seem a bit higher level. Like the, uh, the carnival talk, $1,000 level. A G-top is for carnival people only, often after hours, with the G standing for this activity. That felt like a pretty big guess to have to come up with mm-hmm. gambling, unless you happen to have, I don't know, carnival background. Yeah, agreed. I enjoyed the double initial guys category. Mm. Had LL Cool J in there. Uh, they were they were providing the double initial and then a blank for the last name and a little bit about the person. So LL Cool J, JJ Abrams, AA Milne. B.B. King, and how do you say this guy's last name? C.C. Sabathia. Sabathia. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, He played for your New York Yankees. Right. I... (laughs) You are a big sports fan. Yes. As has been established. You know me and and sports. (laughs) Yes. Pay a lot of attention to them. No hate for people who, who like sports and pay attention to sports. I just have never been able to really get into sports getting more serious about trivia has probably been the best thing for my sports knowledge because it gives (laughs) me something (laughs) some reason to do it other than just like love of the game itself you know like oh well i might as well learn something about this in case it comes up in trivia that's understandable Um, yeah Daily double number one comes up in the landlocked nation category at the $800 level. Steven finds it at the third pick. Uh, he's at $800. Um, Hillary is still at zero. Jonathan's at negative 600 And Steven wagers 1000 as well he should. And he gets the clue. After World War I, this Central European country broke away from a dual monarchy, but lost about two-thirds of its land. He thinks about it for a moment and ends up responding what is austria but the correct response here is hungary uh which broke away from austria Mm -hmm. which that was a that was a tough one because like he clearly knew what he was talking about yes it was austria hungary that broke up Mm -hmm. and yep he went went the wrong way on it yeah 
So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, the contestants are fairly evenly matched. Jonathan's at 5,400. Steven's at 4,200. Hillary is at 2,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are Men of La Mancha, Written in the Dust, Television History, Flagging Interest, What Happened When, and Change One Letter Pairs. So an example that they give for that is a card cart. Mm. Uh, they'll, they'll give you clues for a pair of words where there is one letter of difference. I thought that was a good category. It was appro- appropriately leveled. The first two were fairly mm-hmm. easy. Trousers sections, p- pants parts. And a, the poorer quality Appaloosa is worse horse. By the end, we got to the press agent carries a personal bottle of booze. That's a flak f- flask which Mm -hmm. that was appropriately challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I, I had a hard time getting to worse horse Mm. um, for whatever reason. Cause they don't really rhyme. Yes. That's probably it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Daily double number two is in the what happened when category at the $1,600 level. It is pick number 17 and Jonathan finds it. Uh, He's up to 17,800. Over Stevens three thousand and Hillary's fifty eight hundred, and he wagers forty two hundred. And he gets the clue while surveying the night sky in seventeen eighty one. William Herschel made this big discovery, and I think he probably clued in on the word "big" and guessed what is Jupiter. Uh, but that mm, is yeah. that is Uranus. Uh, that was seventeen eighty one. Which there's just no non-awkward way to pronounce that word. I mean, the the Greek way is Uranus. Oh, Uranus. Okay, that's. Yeah. I mean that. <laughs> that's better. But we're not. That's not how anybody pronounces the the yep. actual planet. It's kind of a kind of funny saying this big discovery Uranus, huh? Discovered Uranus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was big <laughs> big discovery. <laughs> um. Anyway. Yeah, he yeah. got that incorrect, and he dropped down. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, Jupiter was discovered um, long before the ancients could find Jupiter. You can see it with the naked eye. Yeah. And like, um, was it Galileo and. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Named a bunch of, Jupiter, of the moons. Yeah. Yeah. We, right? yeah, we yeah. knew about Jupiter long before. Yeah. Um, and daily double number three is in the written in the dust category at the $800 level. And. Jonathan finds this one as well uh, at the 24th pick. He has 16,800 at this point to Stephen's 3,000 and Hillary's 7,000. He wagers 2,000 and his clue is chapter one of this 1939 novel has quite a lot to say about dust. Like in the morning, it hung like fog. He tries what is gone with the wind, which... It was a 1939 movie. Yeah, it's a 1939 film. Yeah, the, the novel was um, earlier. Yeah, the novel was was earlier, you know, but not not a terrible guess. Uh, but they are looking for the Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive for him to rack up a, the score that he, that he gets to while also missing two Daily Doubles. Yeah, yeah losing 6,200 on Daily Doubles. Pretty, pretty mm-hmm. impressive because... Uh, as you say, going into final Jeopardy, he is in a locked position at 16,000. Hillary is at 7,800. Just so close. Like, as close as you can be. Mm-hmm. 
without yeah. being able to catch him, and Stevens at 5,000. You know, if Steven had just let Hillary get in on that last clue, who knows? Um, well, I mean, it wouldn't have mattered, ultimately. But uh, we get the final Jeopardy category, Notable Women, and the clue of the three pioneering women in their field to be dubbed the Trimates. This one got her PhD from Cambridge in 1966. And I was like, oh, man, which one was British? Oh, man, which one talked with an English accent? I'm trying to remember. Mm. Um, I did get to it, though. Uh, nice. As did everyone on the on the stage. Stephen put who is Goodall, uh, as in Jane Goodall, and wagered twenty eight oh one. Hillary wrote who is Jane Goodall, got twenty and, and wagered twenty two oh one, which brought her up to ten thousand one. And Jonathan wagered nothing, uh, which was smart, but he also got it correct with who is Jane Goodall. Mm-hmm. So he wins his eleventh game. Yes. So on Tuesday. We have the contestants Mandela Namaste. I keep wanting to say it Namaste, yeah. but yeah, that's that's not how it's pronounced as his name. Uh, he's a writer from Williamsville, New York. Nancy Dunhauer, a retired college admissions counselor from Portland, Oregon, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose 11-day cash winnings total $246,100. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the UK since 1945, songs to jingles, car parts apart from cars, TV show opening credits, Literary journalism and fill out your W two. Each correct response will have two W's. And hey, we we were asked to name uh, bo- a boxer who can be no more than one hundred forty seven pounds in the in the W two category. That's a welterweight. Indeed, we were, and indeed it is. Uh, we talked about that when I did my boxing deep dive a few weeks ago. Yep, I remembered that. I liked that car parts apart from cars. That, that was, was fun. That was fun. Just a, a, it was a clever title of the category for one, and it was it was a fun category for me. Oh, and congratulations to the J Archive, um, because the thousand dollar level of that category, an unlawful beating of a person. That was a it was a triple stumper. They were looking for battery. Um, it's the four hundred twenty fifth twenty five thousandth clue entered into the J Archive. J Archive. Indeed, it is. Um, that is they note. a staggering number. That is a large number of clues. Thank you, J-Archive Thank you, J-Archive. Yes, you do. We appreciate you. And you do incredible work. I thought I thought the whole TV show opening credits category was, um, was fun and appropriately leveled. Uh, we started with a description of the opening credit sequence of Mad Men and then... Uh, the Sopranos, a drive down the scenic New Jersey turnpike passes Satriales. Is that how you pronounce that one? I can't I remember. And Pizza Land before ending at a suburban home. And then I thought the $600 level one, the way they framed it just, just sort of amused me. The eight titular characters stare at one another, then at their housekeeper in the center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very like explain it poorly way of <laughs> describing the opening of the Brady Bunch. I just, but Jonathan got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the whole category I, I just thought was a, was a fun one. Um, and then at the $800,000 level, we had sex in the city and Melrose place respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily double number one is in the fill out your W2s category at the $800 level. Pick number 15. Jonathan finds it. 
He's at 4,600. Nancy's at 2,200. Mandela is at 1,000. And he wagers 2,000. Gets a clue. A lawyer in court using this two-syllable word is basically saying, forget what I just said. Uh, and he does not, he's not able to come up with a response, but it is withdrawn, is what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, after taking that hit, Jonathan is in third place at 2,800. Nancy's in the lead at 5,200. Mandela's at 3,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, federal agencies, boredom, when Bay is on the map, foreign language films, name the primary language of each one, Bible numbers, and the end of the world. Each response is a word that can also follow the world. I was a little bit triggered by the $800 question in Bible numbers. David selected five smooth stones out of a stream before his encounter with this person. Uh, Mandela got that correct. It's Goliath. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't expect anybody to remember this, but in the game that I lost at the end of my run, uh, there was a daily double that Rob got and it was asking basically like from this Bible verse or whatever, David bent down and, and pulled five of these from the river. And I it took him a while to respond and I thought he bet big and I was like, he might not know it. He might not get it. And it was stones. And that particular thing, that was the moment I knew I was going to lose that game. <laughs> basically. Mm, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. It happens to all of us. Yeah. I liked that Bible numbers category. We'll get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they, they did a nice job with uh, making, you know, making the uh, the clues appropriate to their dollar level by starting with kind of straightforward, God spent this many days creating the heavens and the earth, that's six, and then making it up to um, clues where you needed to come up with a number and in order to produce the number, you needed to know a little bit about the story. As in the $1,600 level, Jacob ended up serving this many years to win the hand of Rachel. Mm -hmm. Um, So to know the correct answer, you need to know that he was supposed to serve for seven years to marry Rachel. But there was this like tricky switcheroo where um, (laughs) the veiled bride turned out to be Leah. Uh, and so then he served seven more years to also marry Rachel because it's the Bible and women are property. Uh, yes. Um, got a whole rant. <laughs> uh, I've got, I've got a number of rants actually. Um, but, but I'll spare you anyway. So like to correctly answer that one, you needed to not just know how many years he was supposed to serve, you know, but, mm-hmm. but that, but that there were two of them. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the boredom category at the $2,000 level. Mandela finds it at the 20th pick. He's at $5,400. Jonathan's at $11,200. Nancy's at $8,800. Mandela wagers $3,000. If he gets it correct, he's still going to be in third place, just a closer third. Um, And he gets the clue, a state of boredom or an equatorial region where the trade winds cancel each other out, leaving sailors becalmed and bored. He says he's got nothing. 
Uh, they are looking for the doldrums. Mm-hmm. I did not know that was what that word meant. Like, yeah, like the yeah. general meaning of just like boredom, or oh no, I knew it meant boredom. Oh, I didn't be- know that it meant an equatorial region where where the winds uh, just die. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a fun etymology for me to learn. Yeah. Daily double number three is the last pick in the round. It is uh, the $2,000 level of Bible numbers. Nancy finds it. She is at 12400 over Jonathan's 9200 and Mandela's 6000 And uh, she wagers 2000 and gets the clue. As depicted in Genesis, there were this many people on Noah's Ark. She guesses what are 300. That is a bit higher. It is eight. Noah, his wife... And their three sons and wives. Yeah. So that's another one where you need to kind of know the story to come up with the number. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Nancy is in the lead with 10,400. I thought smart when she when she hit the daily double on pick number 30, smart to um, keep her wager small enough that she wouldn't lose her lead. Yeah. Jonathan's at 9,200, Mandela's at 6,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category authors. And the clue, these two men who both died in Boston in the mid 20th century, each won four Pulitzers, one man for poetry and the other for drama. And they all got this correct. Yeah, I thought um, that was pretty impressive that that all three of them got it. Yeah, this some, I, I came up with the poet, but not the correct dramatist. So uh, Mandela has who are Frost and O'Neill, and uh, he's wagered 5,000. That brings him up to 11,000. Jonathan has responded who are Frost and O'Neill, and he's wagered everything, 9,200, bringing him up to 18,400. I think this was when Mayim said, no, Jonathan normally makes a conservative wager. I'm like, well, he normally makes a conservative wager when, like... When he's in first place or in a yeah, lock position. It's not the same. Yeah, like it's not, it's not the, like, I, I mean, I think she, she probably knows, right? Oh, yeah. Um, no, I she hope, knows I if he, she yeah, knows. They, ta- they tell him in the earpiece before. Yeah. But, and I, and I assume that she understands a little bit of the strategy and that, like, the contestants aren't, like, making large or small wagers, wagers because they are, like, large <laughs> wager kinds of humans or small wager kinds of humans, right? Like, it's not, it's not a personality trait necessarily. I mean, sometimes um, people are. But. Sometimes there, there are, I mean, I think there are, there are, contestants who always wager high or always wager low but i think a good jeopardy strategy is to respond to the situation you're in (laughs) um anyway so shock he's wagered everything uh that brings him up to eighteen thousand four hundred. and nancy has responded who are o'neill and frost um and she's wagered nine thousand which is a cover bet and a little bit uh brings her up to nineteen thousand four hundred. And she is our champion. So um, we'll see Jonathan back at the Tournament of Champions. Yeah. Yes. A good 11-game win streak there. Yeah. It's very Uh, impressive. Yes. So we get our third champion of the season going into Wednesday when we have the contestants Jennifer Mosher, a data specialist from Sacramento, California, Tyler Rode, a healthcare data specialist from New York, New York, and Nancy Dunhauer, a retired college admissions counselor from Portland, Oregon, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,400. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the British Royal Family, Handy Andy, State Your Headquarters, Give Me a Break Synonym, 
Plot Point Rewrites, and The Gift of Grab. Plot Point Rewrites was a riot. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, the $600 level, the green room was terrifying. A young mouse, the red balloon, the old lady whispering, hush, sleep would never come to me. <laughs> Tyler got that one. That's good night, moon. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's a weird yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A fun thing to look up. There's there's a few ways you can get this information. I'm trying to remember. So there was um, like the head children's librarian of the New York Public Library did not like uh, Goodnight Moon or Margaret Wise Brown or like that whole kind of movement mm-hmm. uh, within children's literature and and tried to really kind of do her best to uh to to you know sink it this is an episode of the podcast 99 percent invisible oh with roman mars mm-hmm. and the episode is called good night nobody um i like that yeah uh so that was that was a fun listen i've also seen um it's almost like a children's picture book but it's you know, the, the topic is, I don't know, I don't know how interesting it would be to kids, um, but it's like a children's picture book in the Margaret Wise Brown style, but like telling the story of her life, including this episode. Um, hmm. Anyway, fun fact. Interesting. Um, yeah. Daily Double number one is in the British royal family category. It's at the $800 level. Uh, Nancy finds it at the fourth pick. Um, she has $1,200. Tyler and Jennifer are both at zero. Uh, she's gotten the first three clues correct there. And she gets the clue. She was born in 2015 as fourth in line to the throne and stayed in that spot even after she had a baby brother. And she responds correctly, who is Princess Charlotte? I don't really understand like the like the British like royal. I mean, I, I understand the basics of the British royal succession, but like the subtleties of like, right? You know, when you get further out into, you know, sort of uh, various branches of the family, and that I, I don't understand. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Me, yeah. me neither. But we don't need to because we're colonials. <laughs> I learned recently um, that apparently the. Uh, first in line, the second in line, and the third in line are not allowed to ride uh, in airplanes with each other. Um, hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. There's been an exception for, oh gosh, what's his name? The, the Prince William's son, because he's like so so young that like keeping him separated from his father <laughs> for travel for <laughs> for royal succession purposes would, would be a, like an undue right. burden. But yeah, Makes sense. I, I think, uh, yeah, normally they're they're not allowed to. Um, Interesting. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Jennifer's in the lead with 5,400. They're, they're pretty close, though. Tyler's at 4,600. Nancy's at 3,600. We have the double Jeopardy categories. Artistic 19th century women, four-syllable words, the forest for the trees, television, international disputes, and foods with F in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. $1,200 level of foods mentioned fajitas, but nothing about uh, fascism. Nothing about fascism. Strangely. I mentioned fascism <laughs> to the other people who were in the room with me. I'm <laughs> sure they were delighted. Uh, it's awesome. Yes. Always yeah. fun to bring up fascism. Yep. Tyler 
almost ran the category, but then Nancy got the $2,000 level. Mm-hmm. Once somebody's answered four in a row, you're sort of pulling for, I, I find myself pulling for them to get that fifth. Yeah, me too. Um, but good for Nancy and good for Tyler. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the artistic 19th century women category. At the $800 level, uh, Jennifer locates it. She's at 5400 Nancy's at 4400 and Tyler's at 12600 And she bets 4000 which I really like. Trying to get up there, get back in the game. It's at pick number 17, if I haven't already said that. She gets the clue, married last name of opera art director Cosima. Two of her children were named Siegfried and Isolde. And, I mean, if you, if you know opera... Then those those children's names are pretty much dead giveaways, um, mm-hmm. but maybe she did not. Uh, she said, "What is Bello?" Uh, but that is Wagner. Yes, and daily double number three is in the international disputes category at the twelve hundred dollar level, and Nancy finds this one at the twenty eighth pick. Uh, she's at 10,000. Tyler's at 12,600. Jennifer's at 3,000. Um, Nancy wagers 4,000. Uh, so looking to take the lead if she gets it correct does drop her down such that Tyler would be in a lock position, like if they were to call it right after this clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe a little too big in this case. And she gets the clue. Though usually friends, China and this country dispute ownership of islands in the Yalu River. Uh, she tries what is Russia, um, but that's not correct. Uh, they are looking for North Korea. Yep. And so uh, the last two clues of the round are triple stumpers. So effectively, they did call it right after that. Yep. Uh, so going into Final Jeopardy, Tyler is in a locked position at 12,600. Nancy is at 6,000, and Jennifer is at 3,000. And we get the Final Jeopardy category, literary movie roles, and the clue. Among the actresses who have portrayed her are Greta Garbo twice, Vivian Lee, Tatiana Samilova, and Kira Knightley. I think at least uh, Jennifer and Tyler were thinking of a different work <laughs> by a different author. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer wrote Who is Elizabeth Bennet, which I believe Kira Knightley played. Yes, uh, I believe in so. In one of the more recent uh, Prides, Prides and Prejudice? Mm-hmm. Would that how you, is that how you do it? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, but that is incorrect. Uh, she wagered 3,000. Nancy also wagered 3,000 and put who is Blanche Dubois. I don't know that Kira Knightley ever played Blanche Dubois. I don't think so. Because really, I mean, Kira Knightley is the only one who's who's uh, who who I know more than like one or two roles mm-hmm. of. Yeah, like I'm, Vivian Vivian Lee has played Blanche Dubois. I'm seeing as I mm-hmm, Google. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that might have been where she was coming from. Nancy is of a slightly earlier generation, so that's that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tyler yeah. also put who is Elizabeth Bennett. He only wagered a hundred. Uh, not risking his lock, but it is Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. That version of Anna Karenina came out in 2012. With Kira Knightley? Yeah, with Kira Knightley. And Jude Law. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember mm-hmm. that. I don't know why. I don't think I saw it. I just, that is sticking in my head. Yeah. I thought it was recent. Maybe I'm mixing it up with some other kind of. Don't, don't do this. 2012 is recent. Don't do this. Oh, no, of course. Yeah. 
Um, yep, yeah, twenty twelve. Just, just, just a couple minutes ago in twenty twelve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, um, it was interesting that this was the triple stumper after like what I think have been some some very challenging Final Jeopardy clues recently. This I don't know. It's it. I did not. I didn't get it. But this one. I would have pegged it as the more accessible one than like name both of the four Pulitzer prize winning people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, sure. Anyway. So on Thursday, October 28th, we have the contestants, Judy diamond, a management consultant from Fairfax, Virginia, Peter Stein, a documentary filmmaker from San Francisco, California, and Tyler road, a healthcare data specialist from New York, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total 12500 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, U.S. Geography, Actress by Roles, Potent Etymology. Thank you. That's, yep. We, we see you, Jeopardy writers. Um, we can only assume that this is a shout-out meant specifically for us. Mm-hmm. Red, Beans, Bean in quotation marks, and Anne Rice. Uh, I like that one. That's we a, love a that's pun. That's a good one. Uh, that's a good <laughs> it was pun. Great. Yep. I did enjoy the potent etymology category. Me too. I didn't do especially well with it. Oh. I couldn't remember Bushmills. Mm. Uh, the clue was this Irish whiskey's name includes structures that make their barley and the nearby river whose water is used in the spirit. And I was like, the one that's not Jameson's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They'd have taken that, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, the contestants struggled with the $600 level. Swing and a miss for all three of them. Uh, the clue there was started in part by George Clooney. This tequila brand is a portmanteau of the Spanish words for house and friends. Tyler ran in and said, what is Casa Amigos? I think that the other contestants maybe misheard what his incorrect guess was mm-hmm. because then Judy tried what is Casamiga and Peter tried what is Casamigo, but they were looking for Casamigos. Right. A portmanteau. Yep. Not two separate if you, words. If you clearly enunciate Casa Amigos, then that's not a portmanteau. You've made it two words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Tyler was kind of the closest, I think. Yeah. Um, if he just had not put a space there. Yep. All right. So Daily Double number one is in the U.S. Geography category. At the $800 level, Peter finds it uh, at pick number 16. Uh, he's at 600 Tyler is up at 4400 And Judy is at negative $600. And he wagers a full 1000 which is good. He gets mm-hmm. the clue, Las Vegas and Joshua Tree National Park are both found in this 25,000 square mile desert. And he gets that correct with what is the Mojave? Mm-hmm. The Mojave Desert. Yes. He is from San Francisco, so hopefully he is aware of the deserts around there. Yes. I mean, I realize San Francisco is not really that close to Las Vegas, but... Closer than, say, New York or Fairfax. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Tyler maintains his lead at 5,200. Peter's up to 3,800. And Judy's out of the hole at 1,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. 
The Vikings. Doctor is not my first name. At the Ballet. K-pop with K in quotation marks. Science. And one syllable or two. I loved that category. (laughs) That was great. Yeah. I I think I expected more of the words to be like drawer, draw, or like, like, or Mm -hmm. by saying one who doodles or, you know, but I guess the, the one who doodles, you really want to make it two syllables. Right. Um, but I think I was expecting like words where maybe they're technically one syllable. Mm hmm. If you ask like an English teacher from when I was growing up, but people pronounce them as two, like fire. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I, I also liked what the category turned out to be. Mm-hmm. We also got a shout out to a lot of Jeopardy players and fans at the $1,600 level. As a verb, this word mm-hmm. means gained knowledge, but as a two syllable adjective, it means erudite. That is learned mm-hmm. or learned, as mm-hmm. many of us are. Learned leaguers. Yes. Yes. Learned leaguer. Llamas. Llamas. Yeah. Yep. We had a a triple stumper at the $2,000 level of at the ballet that sort of stood out to me. The clue there was the river was a jazz ballet collaboration between band leader Duke Ellington and this choreographer. They were looking for Alvin Ailey, who's kind of a big name and sort of like uh like the like black choreography Mm -hmm. um yeah and like uh the alvin ailey company is that it they are still super active and respected in new york alvin ailey american dance theater um yeah didn't you have a question about coppelia in one of your games? Uh, yes, I believe I did. Was that, that the was one like that... A... Was that the one that... I, this, I, I might take this out if I'm wrong. Was that the one that Lauren Stripling, Brody? Yes. Ha, ha, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there was like the reversal because I think she said like she, a puppet or a marionette or she something. She said marionette and it is specifically not one of those. Yeah. It is a doll, yeah. Yep. Uh, I also had an entire deep dive about the Royal Houses of England, uh, and at the $2,000 level of the Vikings, nobody listened to that, because this great Anglo-Saxon king defeated an army of invading Danish king Vikings at the Battle of Eddington in 878, and that's Alfred the Great, King of Wessex. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, they, maybe they were maybe they were listening, but they, you know, mm-hmm. they, uh, yeah. Focus, yeah I'm focused sure, I'm in sure on they... some of the more relevant <laughs> yes. and recent ones. Uh, yeah. All right. Daily Double number two is in the science category at the $1,200 level. And Judy finds it at the 20th pick. Uh, she has 5,800 at this point to Tyler's 11,600. Uh, hey, she has exactly half his total. And Peter's 9,400. She wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. A substance called chitin largely makes up this shell of certain crustaceans. Uh, And she tries what are bivalves, um, but they're looking for exoskeleton. An Mm -hmm. exoskeleton. Yep. Like crabs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And daily double number three is in the Vikings category, but it's up at the $800 level. Pick number 27, Tyler finds it. Uh, he's in the lead at 15,600, Peter's at 11,400, and Judy is at 4,200, and he wagers 4,000, which I like. He gets the clue, 
Based on a real-life 11th century Viking and involving killing trolls and monsters, the tale of Grettir the Outlaw is one of these epic stories. And he gets that correct with what is a saga. Mm-hmm. It took me the longest time to realize, to like, I think, make the connection that like saga, it's like a, a like a specific genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's a, a particular type of poetic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Saga also is the title of um, my favorite comic that's coming back in a couple months. Yay. Nice. Um, yeah. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, um, Tyler is in the lead with 22,400. It is not a lock game. Just barely. Peter's at 11,400. Um, Judy's at 4,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, World Cities. And the clue from Sydney, Australia... Go 7,000 miles east and less than one half of a degree of latitude north to this capital, also near the Pacific. Uh, Judy tries what is Queensland. That is not correct, uh, but she's wagered zero, so it doesn't matter. Uh, Peter tried what is Wellington. That also is not correct. He's wagered 11,300, so he drops down to $100. Tyler understood the assignment uh, <laughs> uh, um, and has gone far from Australia. Yeah. Um, 7,000 miles is pretty far. It's far. That's far. Yeah. Um, like yeah. the U S is what? Three. Like about 3000. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. Like contiguous. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so Tyler has, what is what it Santiago. Um, you know what? He has what? It works. Yep. What Santiago? Uh, what up, Santiago? And he, yep. And he's wagered, wagered 401, which is a cover bet. Uh, Santiago is correct. Uh, so uh, that gives Tyler his second win, and we'll see him again on Friday. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, October 29th, we have the contestants Ren Romero, a PhD candidate from Evanston, Illinois. Emily Robinson, a political strategist from Brooklyn, New York, and Tyler Rode, a healthcare data specialist from New York, New York, whose two-day cash winnings total $35,301. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Scary Everyday Halloween Stories, Skyscraper City, Foul Play, Presidents Who Weren't Born in the United States, 5-5 with two five-word two five-letter words in each correct response, and landscaping. Mime really leaned into the uh, the Halloween theme today. Yep. Um, yes, she sure did. I did enjoy those uh, scary everyday Halloween stories, which were um, written in kind of a dramatic, written and delivered in kind of a dramatic, eerie style um, but we're thing about things like having jury duty or the Wi-Fi breaking. Mm-hmm. There's some difficulty in the president's yeah. category in the middle of the 400 and the 600. 400 was um, Braintree was still Britville when he was born there in 1767. Uh, Tyler got the closest with who is John Adams. It, I, I, I thought I wondered about this because... We refer to the second president as John Adams and his son as John Quincy Adams. And if he were to be prompted, be more specific, 
I feel like that would be too much, too leading. Yeah. You know, so the I, I think it was the right call to just be like, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because his, he, his name is technically John Adams, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it was the right call, but yeah. I think there's also an argument to be made that like, he didn't get it wrong because it's John Quincy Adams when he said John Adams. Mm-hmm. Ren also missed with who is Thomas Jefferson and Emily missed with who is James Madison. Yeah. John Adams, the second U.S. president, did not have a middle name. I just learned by Googling. Um. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yes. And also wouldn't wouldn't have been old enough to be president in the 1790s. Right. <laughs> uh, if he'd been born in 1767. Yep. 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 Founding father... And a boy genius. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Daily Double number one is in the Skyscraper City category at the $800 level. Uh, they've been giving us the uh, the name of the skyscraper and the contestants are supposed to provide the city. Emily finds this one at the 24th pick. Uh, she's at 2000 to Tyler's 8200 and runs 2000 and she makes it a true daily double and gets the clue 709 feet tall with nearly 1400 rooms the ocean casino resort and she gets that one correct it's atlantic city mm-hmm. so at the end of the jeopardy round tyler's in the lead at 9600 emily is at 4000 um having picked up a little bit more than lost it again maybe lost it and then picked it back up yeah that way after her daily double runs at 800 and we have the double jeopardy categories landscaping this time it's spelled landscape hyphen ing right the villain paintings yep the villain of the piece words from quechua non-medical fevers satellites and musical touring companies they tell you the names of the companies you name the show Mm mm-hmm we had a very close pronunciation miss, and I don't I don't know how I feel about it. The $2,000 level of the villain of the piece. In a Thomas Hardy novel, Alec did this, brings young Tess to ruin. And Emily says, what is Ubervilles? And she is ruled incorrect, because it is Ubervilles, with an R before the B. Mm-hmm. Sure, there is an R before the B. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody actually pronounce it that way, though. Hmm. But I, it could just be my own experience. I'm not confident I've ever heard anyone say it out loud. But in my head, I think I knew it was Durbervilles. I had a back and forth with myself about that clue because I wasn't confident whether at the $2,000 level, the villain would have... The kind of the name that you know from the title or whether right. I was supposed to know a different character name. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Probably the challenge there was that you had to remember that it's Ubervilles. As opposed to Ubervilles, yeah. Right. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, it Emily. was pretty obvious. Like, you yeah, know, like she clearly knew. Knew the work. Yeah. Anyway, yep. uh, Daily Double number two is in the satellites category. It's at the $1,600 level. It's also pick number 16. And uh, Emily finds it. She's at 3,600, Tyler's at 17,600, Ren's at 4,000, and she wagers 2,000. And gets the clue, the name of this satellite that scared the West is Russian for Traveling Companion. And she, I believe, described it 
as her soul leaving her body before she could remember the name Sputnik. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, if I, if I recall I correctly, that's what that but was. I, but I saw it happen. <laughs> yes, it was because she just like, she like flaps her hand and is like clearly having that moment of, I know exactly what this is. Everybody knows what this is. I just can't remember the name, but she gets there. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a few clues later at the 23rd pick. Ren finds Daily Double number three in Words from Quechua. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, she has 9600 at this point. Tyler's at 18000 Emily's at 5600 And Ren wagers 3000 and gets the clue. Often heard in the plural, these grassy flatlands can also be singular. And doesn't manage to come up with anything pompous is the mm-hmm. correct response here. The pompous. Yes. And so the end of this round was actually pretty interesting because like Ren missed that daily double at, you know, pick 23. And fr- from the middle of the round in the last 15 questions, Tyler only got one correct and it was a $400 one. So he had a huge lead, but then Emily and Ren both put in a bunch of work in the last mm-hmm. half of this round and both got within striking distance. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round tyler is at eighteen thousand, but emily is at ten thousand four hundred, and ren is at eleven thousand four hundred. Mm-hmm. and we get the final jeopardy category songs and u.s history and the clue victory in 1805's battle of derna on the coast of north africa inspired a lyric in this song made official in 1929 emily wrote what is the star-spangled banner which is incorrect and uh she wagered everything but two dollars ren Wrote, what is the battle hymn of the R, presumably going for Republic. Republic. Right. Yeah. Um, that is also incorrect. And she wagered everything. Dropped to zero. Tyler got it correct with what is the Marines hymn mm-hmm. or the Marine Corps hymn. He wagered 5,000, which was a little more than a cover bet, but mm-hmm. a nice round number. So, yes, it is the Marines hymn or the, the Marine Corps hymn. Or, mm-hmm. Although I don't know. I don't know if technically Marine Corps hymn is acceptable or not, but. I think it should be. I don't see why it wouldn't be. And so uh, Tyler wins his third game. And uh, we've had three different Jeopardy! champions in a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, indeed. And Kyle, did you say that you covered this little bit of knowledge during your deep dive on the Barbary Pirates? I did not mention that. Yeah. But I did cover this little bit of knowledge in my deep dive about the Barbary Pirates. Because yeah. it is from that same time. And many other fascinating and relevant things to know so. <laughs> that's right go find that yeah <laughs> yep talked about the the shores of tripoli mm-hmm. so there we go that's the end of the week this is the break in the episode where we remind you that we have a patreon we have uh we have recently in the last couple of months gotten a a, a spate of new supporters which we very much appreciate and uh it has been very very helpful um the recent cash cash infusion we are uh currently reaching out to potential audio editors to do that job uh so thank you you are the reason that we are able to do that with that said you can still go support us if you aren't already and if you would like to uh financially on patreon.com slash potent potables we have some stuff up there and if promises mean something to you we promise we're gonna put something else up there uh, if they don't mean that much to you, then we haven't put anything there yet in a while. Um, but we we hey, intend to. Wait a minute. No, that's no. Emily did. You you know what? You're right. Emily did put 
uh, something out there recently. So yeah. I take that back. That being said, uh, it's there for you if y'all want. Uh, and if, you know, supporting us financially is not the most important thing to you, which it probably shouldn't be, uh, there are other more important things that we like to direct your attention and potentially your money toward and that is blacklivesmatter.com communityjusticeexchange.org and the stop asian hate gofundme database so emily yes kyle do you have deep dive guesses uh let's see or should i say do you care to tell the listeners what we're talking about this week um are we talking about anna karenina we are not talking about anna karenina okay i haven't read it and I did not want to look into it. <laughs> Fair. I don't want to look into it either, really. Right. <laughs> Which I guess no. I guess that's a good a good reason to actually look into it because it's like, ugh, I'm yeah. never going to learn this otherwise. Mm-hmm. What about deuterium? Uh, not deuterium. Crossed my mind though. Okay. What about the? I can't even remember how to pronounce these. The Faroe Islands. Uh, not the Faroe Island, though that actually was one of the things. I looked at the Faroe Islands, I thought about the doldrums. So it's from Wednesday's game. In the Double Jeopardy round, the Forest for the Trees category at the $2,000 level. Uh, the Bulge, as in the Battle of the, in this forest, includes the Elsenborn Ridge in Belgium. And that is the Ardennes. Mm. The Ardennes Forest. And so... My deep dive is going to be on the Battle of the Bulge. Like I said, it was in World War II. The general like reason that it's called the Battle of the Bulge uh, is because it was the uh, last major German offensive on the Western Front during World War II. It was an attempt to break the Allied lines and attempt to uh, recapture specifically Antwerp, but other deep water ports to kind of cut off their supply lines and attempt to force a peace treaty that would favor the Axis powers. So it wasn't even an attempt to kind of like win the war. It was an attempt to force a peace treaty because the Allies couldn't necessarily advance anymore if that had been successful. Mm. Uh, So this was in the winter of... Uh, 1944 to 1945. Uh, Specifically, the campaign is from December 16th, 1944 to January 25th, 1945. And like I said, it was along the Western uh, Front, which at various times was the French coast all the way into uh, Germany. So the Ardennes is a densely forested region between Belgium and Luxembourg. uh, And that's where the majority of this battle took place. So like I'd mentioned, it was kind of an attempt of the Germans to, to retake Antwerp and split the Allied lines. Th- there are a number of reasons that this could even happen in the first place. And one of them was that after D-Day, the Allied advance through Europe was actually significantly faster than either side expected. And because of that, uh, supply lines for the Allies got stretched really, really thin and uh, made it very, very difficult for the troops on the Western Front to remain uh, supplied and and reinforced for, for a couple of reasons. One of those was, like I said, they just move faster and like setting up supply lines is kind of difficult. And uh, the other side of that was that as the Germans retreated, they would destroy and ransack uh, infrastructure as they went, like in uh, some of the, the deep water ports. And also the Allies mangled French uh, railways 
before like like as as part of their offensive they would like bombard railways to to slow down uh german reinforcements or retreats but that meant once the allies took that land then the railways were still destroyed and they had a hard time keeping supply lines moving mm-hmm. you know c- come january or uh, uh december of 1944 the allies have pushed all the way through france and into belgium and uh Cold weather has kind of made it really difficult because that was a very, very cold, uh, cold winter. Um, it's made it difficult for them to keep moving. It's also made it difficult for the Germans to, to do much. And so they're, they're kind of like taking a, taking a moment. And the Western Front is kind of spread thin because, like I said, they can't reinforce. Uh, in the north, it's mostly British forces uh, led by Field Marshal Montgomery. Kind of the center is American forces under the command of Eisenhower. And to the south, we have American forces under the command of Patton. They have to make decisions about where to man the line, and they decide that the Ardennes is a place that they can pull troops and uh, resources from because it's heavily wooded, which means that it would be very difficult for uh, armored vehicles to move through, and also just in general difficult to move like infantry through because they don't have open land to just drive across. The the Germans figure that out, and Hitler becomes insistent that they need to mount a major counteroffensive through the Ardennes. And so the German uh, Wehrmacht figure it out. He insists it needs to be done. They figure it out. Uh, some of the higher-ups argue with him about the logistics of it, but um, he is unrelenting. So they, they figure out a way to do it. And uh, on December 16th, they start pushing... Uh, into the Allied lines and force them back pretty quickly. This was a surprise attack for a number of reasons. First of all, after the uh, Valkyrie plot, the July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler, he became a lot more strict and and kind of paranoid about information. So the whole uh, the whole of this operation was done under radio silence. It was done through written communication and uh, like only through telephone. So like the Enigma machine was not used to communicate about uh, the Ardennes counteroffensive. And because of things like that, Bletchley Park, which was the British like intelligence agency that cracked the code for the Enigma, they weren't able to get the information. They weren't able to figure out that this was going to happen. And uh, in addition to that, the Germans kind of like through troop movement and uh, purposefully misleading radio traffic, they convinced the Allies that on the other side of the Ardennes, the Germans were using it as like a, a rest and recuperation place for uh, for their, their troops, and that they were purposely going to like send a bunch of troops and planes and armored vehicles up to Dusseldorf to make a northern attack. Uh, and so all of this was was used and effectively misled the the Allies to not expect what became the Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. Um, the Germans called this Operation Watch on the Rhine, after the patriotic German hymn Die Wacht am Rhein. It began with a 90-minute artillery barrage uh, across an 80-mile front on the Allied troops facing the 6th Panzer Army. So the Panzer uh, was the tank divisions. And the 5th Panzer Army attacked toward Bastogne, which was where a lot of the fighting actually happened uh, in this battle. And farther south, the 7th Army pushed toward Luxembourg. Uh, and so, like I said, the, the intention was to push through the Ardennes, break the line in the middle, 
and kind of isolate the north from the south. They laid siege to Baston, uh, as well as engaging the Allies in the fateful battle of Elsenborn Ridge. Elsenborn Ridge was the single uh, most deadly battle for American uh, soldiers in the entire war. Uh, however, those battles did did serve to stop the German advance and force them into unfavorable alternate routes that significantly slowed them down or turned them back. There were a couple of massacres during this. So the, mm. the Battle of the Bulge lasted, like I said, over a month. Uh, so there were... There was a lot of movement and a number of events during it. Uh, one of those was the Malmedy Massacre. So the 17th of December, it was just a day after it started, the Kampfgruppe Piper was near the hamlet of Bognes, on the height halfway between the town of Malmedy and Lineuville. Uh, they encountered elements of the 285th Field Artillery Observation Battalion uh, and the U.S. Uh, 7th Armored Division. There was a battle, and the Americans surrendered. They were disarmed. And they were sent to stand in a field near the crossroads under light guard. After about 15 minutes, the main body of the German force under the command of SS Sturmbannfuhrer Pachki arrived, and the SS troopers opened fire on the prisoners. Oof. They, those SS officers were tried at the end of the war for the incident at the Malmedy Massacre trial. Another smaller massacre was committed in Verith, Belgium, on uh, the same day. 11 black American soldiers were tortured after surrendering and then shot by men of the 1st SS Panzer Division. The perpetrators were never punished for this crime, but in 2001, a group of people began working on a tribute uh, to those 11 black American soldiers. However, the massacres were not just on the German side. Following the Malmedy Massacre on New Year's Day 1945, after having previously received orders to take no prisoners, American soldiers murdered approximately 60 German prisoners of war near the Belgian village of Chinon which was eight, about eight kilometers from Bastogne. Uh, so there are a number of battles within the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge is really more of a campaign than an actual battle. Mm. During this time, there was one uh, Operation Grief, or Griffin. There was some uh, a small group of Germans uh, under Otto Skorzeny and his battalion of English-speaking German soldiers, disguised in American uniforms, uh, infiltrated Allied lines, and they were attempting to take the Meuse River bridges, uh, but they did not succeed. However, their presence caused confusion and paranoia way out of proportion of the actual military activity. Uh, even General Patton on the 17th of December described to General Eisenhower that there were, quote, Krauts speaking perfect English, raising hell, cutting wires, turning road signs around, spooking whole divisions and shoving a bulge in our defenses. Uh, and there were actually like checkpoints set up uh, within the Allied lines to like make sure that there weren't any spies in among them. And they were asked a bunch of questions that only Americans would know, like the identity of Mickey Mouse's girlfriend or the capital of a U.S. state or baseball scores or something like that. But a lot of these questions, a, a number of Americans didn't remember or know. And even General Omar Bradley was briefly detained when he correctly identified Springfield as the capital of Illinois because the MP who questioned him mistakenly thought it was Chicago. So we see how well that stuff works. Um, but it was very, very, it was like really effective to sow, uh, you know, confusion. And it slowed down the American advance as well. So I mentioned uh, the Battle of Baston or the Siege of Baston. That is uh, kind of the biggest part of of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, the 101st Airborne Division was in Baston uh, when the Germans surrounded it by the 21st of December. 
and inside the perimeter, conditions were tough. Most of the medical supplies and medical personnel had been captured, and food was scarce. So they were like they were they were under siege, and they were restricted. Uh, artillery was restricted to ten rounds per gun per day. However, uh, ammunition and other supplies were able to be dropped in as the weather cleared. Um, but they managed to hold the line. This is where we get the uh, General McAuliffe's famous response of nuts. Hmm. He, he was the acting commander of the 101st, and he was told of the Nazi demand to, to surrender, and his response was nuts, I guess. I don't know what I would say, <laughs> but I, I guess that's what you say. So by the, uh, the 26th of December, General Patton's 4th Armored Division uh, was able to break through the siege and open a corridor to Beston. And after that, the Allies were able to uh, push back and, and move forward. Over the next week... The Allies were able to retake uh, a number of their positions. Then on January 1st, the Germans tried to keep the offensive going and launched two new operations. The Luftwaffe launched Operation Baseplate uh, to try and take out a bunch of air f- Allied airfields in the Low Countries. Hundreds of Luftwaffe planes uh, bombed Allied airfle- airfields and uh, did a lot of damage, destroyed or severely damaged about 465 aircraft. The Luftwaffe also lost 277 planes. They lost 62 of them to Allied fighters and 172 of them, mostly because uh, of Allied flak guns. There was a lot of anti-aircraft guns out there. They also lost about 40 of their own planes to friendly fire from German flak guns because uh, the ground forces had not been informed that the Luftwaffe were going to be doing a major air offensive at that time. And after that, the Luftwaffe was out of the war. The Germans couldn't resupply and couldn't build more planes as quickly as the the Allies. The Allies were able to resupply in a matter of days. The same day, uh, Army Group G and Army Group Upper Rhine made a major major offensive against um, the U.S. 7th Army. This is called Operation Northwind. And it was the last German offensive on the Western Front. They managed to push the 7th Army back and uh, almost surround them. But the Allies were able to resupply. Patton's 3rd Army in the south uh, was able to move forward pretty effectively and uh, and, and reinforce. Um, on January 7th, 1945, Hitler agreed to withdraw all forces from the Ardennes, including the SS Panzer Divisions. And that ended all offensive operations. Uh, and then on the 14th, Hitler granted Gerd von Rundstedt permission to carry out a fairly drastic retreat from the Ardennes. And that was, uh, that was the end of it. Winston Churchill, addressing the House of Commons, uh, said that the Battle of the Bulge is undoubtedly the greatest American battle of the war and will, I believe, be regarded as an ever-famous American victory. So it's notable that Churchill said that it was an, uh, an American victory um, because I mentioned that the Northern Front uh, was led by Field Marshal Montgomery and, and was a mostly British, but uh, British and Canadian force. Uh, Montgomery was uh, pretty vocally and publicly in disagreement with Eisenhower about how the Western Front should be handled, and especially once the uh, Ardennes counteroffensive began, how they should respond to that. Eisenhower wanted to have a strong, a like unified front all the way across, whereas Montgomery believed that the best thing to do would be to make a, a, a focused front, a narrow front, into the German forces. And they were v- very vocal about it. Um, Montgomery talked to the press and, you know, said what he believed. And so part of the reason that Hitler thought it was such a good idea to try and break the lines where they were was because 
he believed that Montgomery and Eisenhower did not see eye to eye and he wanted to like force the issue and make make the two sides uh, not be able to like communicate with each other. But in the end, the American strategy was the one that at least won out and seems to have been the right choice. So it was, ex- it was extremely, extremely costly on both sides, uh, both in terms of like equipment, but especially in terms of casualties. According to the Department of Defense, American forces suffered 89,500 casualties, including 19,000 killed, 47,500 wounded, and 23,000 missing. An official report by the United States Department of the Army lists 105,000 casualties, which also includes Operation Northwind. It was major. And especially after the, the like, kind of success after success af- that followed the Normandy invasion, this was kind of a big hit uh, to the Allies. You know, it was, like I said, it was a, it was the last major offensive of the Germans, and uh, they the Allies were not expecting it. Bletchley Park did some post-mortem on the whole situation as to try and figure out why they didn't know this was coming. Um, and there's a whole there's a whole story behind that. I'm not going to get into that, though. The success of the Allies at the Battle of the Bulge basically guaranteed that the war would end with an invasion of Germany. Again, if, if the Germans had been at all successful, they might have been able to force uh, a, a peace treaty that would have worked out much more in their favor. Uh, so there we go. I'm going to leave it at that. I think that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Battle of the Bulge. That was uh, great. December 16, 1944 to January 25. 1945 yeah thanks that was uh very informative and i am terrible at the war and battle aspects of history um i know you've mentioned that so i don't feel necessarily bad about talking about war stuff yeah no i'm glad (laughs) you did and i do want to mention like i don't know that i actually mentioned it it's called the battle of the bulge because that's what happened to the allied lines Right, they forced a mm-hmm. bulge in the line by pushing back at one particular place. If you want to talk about the location, it's the Ardennes counteroffensive or or the Battle of Ardennes, or you know, there there are a number of names for different for it, uh, depending on who you are or where you're from. But in the in the U.S., we call it the Battle of the Bulge. All right, are you ready for a quiz based on the Bulge? I guess I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, question one. The Bulge Offensive was initially effective because Allied forces were not expecting it. Their expectations could be described using what now common phrase? The term originated from World War I and lends itself to the title of both novel by Eric Maria Remarque and films from 1930 and 1979. Is it, is it all quiet on the Western Front? It is all yes. quiet on the Western ah. Front. Nice. Yes. Uh, so it is the Western Front that it was. And uh, yeah, it comes from World War One. I. I haven't read it. Haven't seen the movies. I know I should. I know it's a classic. Uh, but apparently the term uh, has to do with soldiers kind of waiting for something to happen and the stress and kind of neurosis that grew out of that, as well as the inability of them to kind of return to civilian life afterward. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Nice. 10 points. All right. Question two. The Bulge is the third most costly campaign in terms of human lives lost in American military history. Part of that campaign, the Battle of Elsinborn Ridge, is the single deadliest battle in American military history. 
Other battles from the World Wars, Korean War, and American Civil War fill out the top ten of this macabre list. One through nine each lasted multiple days or even weeks. At number ten, which Civil War battle lasted just one day, accounting for the deadliest single day of American battle deaths in history? Ooh. I feel like we just had this in a Jeopardy question. Um, and there's a part of me that wants to say Gettysburg, but I think it wasn't Gettysburg. I think I would, I think that we talked about, I think, I think that if it were Gettysburg, I would have retained it. Um, Shiloh's the other one that's coming to mind. Gotta go with one of the two of those. Flip a coin. Let's go Shiloh. Uh, what I have is the Battle of Antietam. Oh, all right. Yep. That, that checks out. So I'm, I've kind of heard different things on this. Shiloh was also extremely deadly. Mm-hmm. And I imagine if we have Civil War buffs who know more, they can correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe Antietam was the single deadliest day. That makes sense. Yep. Um, yep, yep. Gettysburg had more deaths, but lasted multiple days. Yep. And Shiloh, I'm seeing, uh, was uh, was two days. All right. Mm. So that's... Yep. Yeah. yeah. So Antietam is the, is the, the single day most mm-hmm. deaths. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah, let's move on from that. All right, question three. One of the landmarks um, that the Germans retreated to after the Battle of the Bulge was the Siegfried Line, which was the German answer to the Maginot Line, which I've talked about in another Mm -hmm. deep dive. Siegfried is a prominent figure in Teutonic folklore. He is also the title character of the third work in what 19th century series? And for an extra point each, what are the other three works in that series? All right. Um, it's the, it's the ring cycle. It is the ring cycle. And... So you get the 10 points. Oh no, I definitely know the titles. I don't think I'm going to be able to remember the other titles. Yeah. Okay. Well, you got the 10 points. They are Das Rheingold, Die Valkyrie, Mm. and Gotterdammerung. Yep. Yep, that's that's that exactly as I knew somewhere in my brain. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the ring cycle. I saw Siegfried line and I was like, well, I have to mention that somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh you're at twenty points. Question four. The Bulge is the name of a gay bar that hosts the following theme nights. Meaty Man Mondays, Twink Tuesdays, Waxed Chest Wednesdays, Share Thursdays. Freaky Fridays, The Saturday Steam Room, and Sensuous Sundays, spelled S-U-N-D-A-Z-E. It also hosted campaign events for a local bureaucrat who had become a gay rights icon after marrying two male penguins at the city zoo. What sitcom does this notable location appear in? Oh, what sitcom? I don't know it. I'm trying to come up with a sitcom that kind of fits... Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh no, this is Parks and Recreation. Oh, that yep, that absolutely makes sense. And I should have um, should have thought. Well, it's Kyle asking. It's, it's, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of kind of my brand. 
<laughs> but also, I, I was doing about the bulge, and I was like, I, I gotta mention the bulge. Yeah. Pawnee's favorite gay bar. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, question five. You're at 20 points still. Uh, all right. That's okay. Question one. five. You got it. I, I believe in you. Dusseldorf, the capital city of North Rhine-Westphalia, was used as a decoy to trick Allied reconnaissance, contributing to the surprise nature of the Ardennes counteroffensive. Dusseldorf mustard is the traditional condiment given to top burgers from what fast food chain? It goes well with onions and pickles, and you could probably make one packet work for two or three of these burgers. Um, if we're talking about small burgers, then probably it's White Castle. It is White Castle. Yes. You get Dusseldorf mustard huh. in your in your Crave case. I have had White Castle a time or two, but I did not remember the mustard. Oh, it Especially. makes the burger. Mm. It makes the burger. Okay. And I don't know. I don't know why the nostalgia tastes so good to me for White Castle, but I love White Castle, mm-hmm. even though I know that they are like objectively not good. <laughs> I don't think I ever had White Castle until after seeing Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Yeah, I have never sought them out under the influence of drugs, so I don't know how effective they are in that setting either. I can. I also cannot speak to that particular question. I'll always eat White Castle. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you got 30 points. Hey, All right. you got it. All right. And uh, our final is, uh, let's go with historical holidays. Um, let's go all in. I'll make it a, I'll, I'll wager everything. Okie dokie. Here we are. So about a week and a half after the Ardennes counteroffensive began... An event occurred at a small cabin in the Hurtgen Forest near the Belgian border. Prominent in the story is a trio of American soldiers, a quartet of German soldiers, and the civilians Elizabeth and Fritz Finken. While it is much smaller in scale than an event that happened 30 years earlier and did not involve soccer matches, both events share what name? Hmm. It sounds like... No, I'm, I'm trying to... I know that you just said any number of times the dates of the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> it would probably be cheating to try and get you to repeat them. It sure sounds like the like the Christmas truce or the Christmas ceasefire, though. Is that... Emma, Emma, yeah, we'll go with that. Well, that's good, because it is a Christmas truce, yes. Uh, <laughs> so the, the big Christmas truce is World War I, like 1914, Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Christmas Day. That's the Christmas truce. But apparently there is a story. I just learned about this today. There is a story of, like I like I said, this cabin in the woods. A couple of American soldiers with their injured fellow soldier came to this cabin and knocked on the door and like asked if you know we need a place to stay. The civilians welcomed them in. And then a little while later, this group of German soldiers who also got separated from their unit knocked on the door and were like, hey... We'd like a place to stay. And uh, the story goes that Elizabeth Vinken was like, you're welcome to put your guns down and come in, but be aware there are some men in here who are not friends of Germany. Hmm. And uh, so all the soldiers kind of like looked at each other and they were like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So she was basically like, no violence will happen here tonight. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. And the Germans helped uh, the injured American. They helped bandage him up. 
and mm-hmm. take care of them, and then they went their separate ways. So yes, it is the it is a Christmas truce. That's well heartwarming. Done. Yeah, it's nice in the context of all the tragedy of war. Mm-hmm. So you got sixty points. Yay! Not not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Well, this was a this was a fun quiz and a great deep dive. So thank you and thanks, listeners. Uh, lovely to spend this time with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review to uh, help others find us as well. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. That's right. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. Mm-hmm. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. 